Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. This is Isaac. And today we're going to play a game. Um, it's not really a game, but let's frame it as a game of how were you radicalized? Um, this was Isaac's idea. Isaac, what, what were you thinking on this? I know I'm thinking that I wish I had brought a Bane soundboard. I know. I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot of recently about the moment that we're in, you know, sort of hopes and and ambitions for the future. And but just also like the beginning of a process of of what it means to go through the kind of transformation that radicalizing can create, you know, like the effect it can have on relationships with institutions or with family or with other people. And just, you know, how do we effectively go about radicalizing more people? I think some of the best ways is to talk about what did it for us. So, and also I think some of my like frustrations about some of the pushback that you can receive once you get radicalized. So those are just some of the things that I wanted to kind of talk about and, and unpack in here from y'all. You know, just trying to go with something a little more personal for all of our uh, all of our fans and listeners out there to get to know us better as hosts. Yeah, well, and it's I think it's also especially unique now. I mean, it's one of those things. If you're paying attention, it's probably always um, relevant. But right now, with in the wake of and maybe it's still going on the whole GameStop stock market thing, it's been fascinating for me to see kind of. I don't want to call them normie, but like middle of the road liberal types of, that are friends of mine, all of a sudden realizing, hey, wait a minute, this stock market thing and the and capitalism, that it might not be for me. It's like, yeah, I'm gl- welcome. Come on in. Um, so I think it's I think it's even more relevant uh, now, just in, in the wake of all these people deciding, like, all right, what if we go in on these hedge fund managers? What if we try to make them lose billions of dollars? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm here for it. Word, Gary. Yes. <laughs> Is there a question? I just didn't know if you were, uh, were going to jump in. Um, before we get started on hedge fund managers, uh, does radicalizing people, Brian, from your perspective, also involve showing them your uh, Karl Marx Mario tattoo mashup? <laughs> Funny story. Yeah, not yet. I haven't gotten it yet, but it will. That's going to be part of it, right? Like that's the... I'm just going to have it on my arm. And when people, it's, it'll be like, it'd be like the kind of apocryphal story of like when two Christians would meet on the beach and one of them would use their toe to draw half the fish and the other one would draw the other half of the fish. Uh, and then, you know, oh, now we can talk about Jesus. And it's going to be that way. It's like, you just like lift up the arm sleeve, right? And uh, and uh, they'll, they'll see the marks tattoo and they'll be like, oh, okay, this guy, we can talk about it. Actually, I, I reached out. I can't remember if I sent this, to, sent this to you all, but I reached out to a tattoo artist. He's like, I try not to put t- uh, politics into my tattoos. And I was just like, Cool, bro. That's <laughs> like I guess I'm moving on. Then uh, he's like, I'd love to do a Mario tattoo for you. Me, I was like, yeah, it's not really the energy I'm trying to put out in the world. I need the I need the Mario uh, Marks mashup. But yeah, that's 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 of course that's a way to relate with the kids, right? Like the youth power, a youth youth uh, pastor energy. That's what I'm trying for. Oh man, that is big youth pastor energy. Um, but quick important question about the tattoo: whose facial hair is going to be dominating the character Marx's beard or Mario's like mustache? Well, I think if you look at like uh, the picture that I'm going for, hold on, I've got it right here. Marx has, he's got the, he's got the, you know, the darker mustache, but let's just add the white beard onto the regular Mario. And this Ah. is actually one of the problems is I feel like I'm going to have to explain it too much because also if you put an M on his hat, he's already got an M on his damn hat. So I think this might be one of those things of uh, a good idea, <laughs> maybe not good execution, maybe not good execution, and maybe you guys, maybe you already uh, 
we're in that camp. But uh, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of dig it. I still might get it. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. My wife, uh, as as you might might figure, is is really psyched about this tattoo. If there are any tattoo artists listening to the pod that want to help Brian out, hit us up on Twitter or wherever, <laughs> because we need to make this happen. I will say as far as uh, partners and like how they feel about your tattoos, I was a part of a church once where a guy had gotten a tattoo of his um, deceased wife's face on his chest when he was already like remarried to another person. And... Uh, I always wondered like how that went. Every time he took a shirt off, there was uh, his former wife's face. But yeah, uh, you That's know. A, it's a bold choice for <laughs> sure. Especially that location. I mean, that, that placement is, a, is, a, is an odd choice as well for a number of reasons. But yeah, I, I don't know. You know, the, getting off that topic really quickly. Um, the, the Mario, you know, Mark's mashup tattoo. I mean, that, that part of that is, is like, I don't know, it feels... <laughs> I, I can't. I feel like I'm feeling very vulnerable right now talking about this. It feels it feels a little cliche to have a a Karl Marx tattoo, like just a regular straight up Karl Marx tattoo. But like somehow the Mario one doesn't. But this is like like this is actually part of like my radicalization story, right? Like uh, I, I remember the first time that I read the Communist Manifesto, which is like again super cliche, but it was in college and it was like my first first like political theory class. I read this and I was like, holy shit, this makes sense. Like and it was like and then they, again cliche, people read that and then come out radicalized. But it's one of those things of like, you talk about like a 180 moment, right? Like where all of a sudden you think you understand how the system works and then you read something and it pivots you in this different direction. You can never get off that path. And that's how it felt. And it's, you know, it's raised, now I'm raising two like uh, anarcho-communists in my house who who like have no trust in any system whatsoever, nor are more than uh, my son. But you know, it, I, I don't know. So like, that's part of it for me is like that the tattoo kind of symbolizes a little bit of that, you know, that commitment to staying radical, I guess, and, and a commitment to Mario Kart. I've made so many commitments to Mario Kart in my life. Uh, so I feel that. Carrie, what, do you have a tattoo that relates to your uh, radicalization or do you want to take this conversation in a different, uh, in a different direction? Please. <laughs> None of my tattoos relate to my radicalization, but several do relate to my faith, which is kind of the reason I ended up, I don't love saying radicalized, although I guess it's probably accurate, but it just sounds like we're white supremacists and we're not, to be clear. Uh, yeah, I hope people have figured that out. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. I just, uh, I think that, uh, like talking about the process of radicalization is kind of strange for me because like from a fairly young age, I kind of knew I was on, like that I was going to be downwardly mobile. Like I definitely grew up like upper middle class. And I also, from a young age, like really deeply believe that Jesus called us to be among the marginalized. Um, Although I wouldn't have phrased it that way. And so I guess just like from college, when I was like looking into ministry and doing missions as a career, I, I was just already oriented towards, I don't, I wouldn't have called it like, I wouldn't have called it like, I wouldn't have put it in terms of class because I wasn't thinking about class in that way uh, because I went to UT and they <laughs> are weirdly conservative. But I was—I just knew that uh, that Jesus was not like excited about rich people. And so perhaps it was actually kind of bad to be like uh, orienta- orienting your entire life around making money. And that was never my goal. And then I worked in, I was, let's see, 
I was in the service corps, so I was making no money for an entire year. And before that, I'd worked as a missionary, so I was making no money for an entire year. But then I worked in retail for two years, and I think that's what radicalized me. (laughs) That's the real answer, is that I worked in retail for Barnes & Noble, and I made $9 an hour working 32 hours a week because they didn't want to pay full-time employees. So I had no benefits, and I couldn't pay my bills. And like at the end of every month, I had to text my parents and be like, can I borrow $50 so I can eat? Uh, And I got radicalized. Yeah, it's not that exciting of a story. (laughs) I was like, unions should exist. But that is, but to me, like that is exciting because I, th- I think there are the majority of people live in the, who live in that existence. Me, myself being one of them uh, for a long time, is they don't they don't break through onto they don't see that right. They see it as well. Eventually, I'm going to make it to where I'm a manager at Barnes and Noble, and I can be the one oppressing people. But it's like, but they they don't. I don't think they make that breakthrough, or at least they don't um, phrase it in a way because they've been conditioned to think like Marxism or communism or socialism, whatever buzzword buzzword scares them most is bad. So it can't be that. It can't be that the system is broken. This is also another one of my kind of radicalized things is growing up fairly poor um, and just kind of from a young age, not being able to articulate that we're different. I don't really understand how, but then like stuff like that slowly through the things of like, oh, look at this. I'm getting made fun of for this because I don't have this or, you know, I'm, uh, I see my family members having to work three times as much as this person's family members. And so that was like a reverse kind of engineering uh, radicalization. It's like looking back and seeing like, oh, all this stuff was shitty that made my life worse. And it's because of, you know, all of these systemic issues. So I I think a lot of people just don't see that uh, or never make that breakthrough. So I think that's exciting. I mean, I I think that Carrie, you know, I totally agree with Brian that it, it is a big deal because right now as we're like seeing the Democrats talk about raising the the federal minimum wage to $15, you know, just the instant response from most people on social media to that idea that someone who works retail or fast food should make $15 an hour. It's just absolutely atrocious. They're like, oh, well, we don't pay soldiers. I mean, that the funny <laughs> thing about it is that it's all, it's all class war propaganda. It's just like, oh, you think a a person flipping burgers at McDonald's should make the same as a soldier or like a healthcare worker. And it's like, well, you know, but their job sucks and a soldier's job is important. It's like, actually just pay everybody more. Everybody should make more money. But rather than like, look at all these other industries where we've, you know, uh, deeply suppressed wages and wage growth. And like, let's just continue to immiserate everybody because... Some people, but you know, I think this is an interesting thing for our generation because, and and this is part of, I guess, uh, maybe all three of our radicalizations. But so much, I think, of growing up in the Methodist church, but also just like white and sort of lower middle class, or in a particular time of like '90s optimism, maybe was like, oh, your job is going to be like the most meaningful part of your life. And like part of your like vocation as a Christian is to like, you know, use your God-given gifts and and some sort of like, if you follow the steps, like kill yourself in high school to get into a good college. And then you'll like ascend into some upper-class thing. And then that process just like not, not working out, like just the reality of the myth that you can't be anything that you put your mind to in this country. Like, I think that that was part of my initial radicalization, which is, is being a music major in college, 
seen a ton of really talented people who were just did not have the resources, not get jobs and leave the field. And people who were less talented, but knew the right people or had a lot of money to from their parents to waste, like actually making it and realizing that connections and wealth were like the gatekeepers to the arts community. But also this deeper like feeling that if even if you played the game, the way that our like parents told us to or society told us to that it was not going to work out and you can end up in like doing a like this idea that your job should be like this fulfillment of you was just another capitalistic myth that our generation is seeing in that downwardly mobile thing first generation to have like worse living conditions than our parents in american history like that that shit just wasn't true so i i think that um you know there there's a a lot to to unpack in that and and it, you know the experience of like the way effort and and sort of ambition get detached from the like reality of the labor market is what a lot of people our age are being radicalized by hopefully now so are you saying are you saying that people are in order to kind of have that like job fulfillment are taking less wages is that or, or are you saying the opposite just to be clear <laughs> I mean, I think a ton of people like think that they, you know, they want to work in a field that gives them some sort of feeling of yeah. doing meaningful work, and um, they either have to realize that that's not available to them, and so they compromise and and find themselves in a in a job that is different from what they intended or what they were trained for, or they are doing exactly what you said, working in a field that is meaningful work for them, but. At, you know, un, in unsustainable conditions like nonprofit work or ministry or whatever else, and they end up burning out and leaving that and leaving that field. Yeah, this is. I, I was texting with my my boss, the priest, uh, <laughs> who uh, we were talking about this exact same topic uh, while it was earlier today. And I, you know, I, I told her I made. I, I don't think I made above thirty thousand dollars a year with this, you know with a graduate degree and everything else and a ton of experience until like twelve years into being a, a, a youth pastor. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things like, and then my, my first like real big job was working at a nonprofit publishing house. Um, and even that, it was just like, you know, you're not working there for the money. You're working there for the, because you love what you're doing. You care about the mission and stuff like that. And at some point it's like, I struggle with how that becomes predatory in some ways by the people who are running those sorts of things because they know that you're not going to complain because you're one of the lucky people that has a job in this field. And it's, you know, it's, you know, in a weird way, prestigious. It's not, but you think it is when you're in that, in that moment. So that, that's what I was trying to get at with my question. I want to like turn this in a little bit of a different direction if we can though, because I, I think that one of the other realities about radicalization is not just like sort of waking up to the reality of economic exploitation or labor or stuff like that. But also, you know, for us as white people and in the context of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement this summer and everything else, I'm just curious to hear what y'all's process was in sort of being, thinking about white supremacy, thinking about, you know, uh, racial injustice in y'all's area. Were there key moments? Were there key things that that uh, helped wake y'all up to the reality that so many people have spent the summer or the last couple of years under the Trump administration waking up to? I think for me, well, so I'm the same age as Trayvon Martin. So that was a really big deal, obviously nationally, um, when he was murdered. And uh, because I was the same age as him, I think I connected really 
I connected, I spent so much time like that same summer doing bullshit in a hoodie, like getting Skittles at the gas station. And because I am white, I was never in any danger. And so I think that moment um, was when I was open, like I opened my eyes to uh, the realities of white supremacy and then spent a good chunk of my college career um, taking classes in a religious studies department that was also pretty focused on um, evangelical and Southern Christianity and how it intertwined with race. And so I think I was pretty lucky in that I got to study that in an academic context where I got to like read um, and have professors interpret some of the theory about um, race and religion. And then my brother is the same age as Michael Brown. Um, And so when the Black Lives Matter movement really started in earnest in 2014, I think uh, that my family and I, like we all kind of uh, started reckoning more with uh, the ways that white supremacy has helped us because my mom was really affected by um, Michael Brown's death and what happened because she looked at him and, and saw my little brother. So yeah, I think that obviously we're still working through it. I think that my uh, understanding and like read, learning about and trying to actively work against white supremacy has kind of mirrored uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in America, which has been kind of interesting because I've, I've often, I think I've often felt like I am ahead of some of my peers in the Episcopal Church because of my academic training. But I, I also know that I'm very far behind people who study this for a living and uh, people who are, who are activists and have been fighting this fight for years. So it's kind of an interesting place that I find myself in. I don't know, what about y'all? Uh, you know, I'm old, obviously, has been noted on this podcast many times. So it's probably Rodney King was the first time um, I was in high school, maybe maybe eighth grade. But I remember, it was just one of the first times of like kind of seeing something like that and having it register. Michael Brown was probably the the first moment of like real kind of like reckoning with especially just like language, like using language like white supremacy, um, understanding things that, you know, I, I don't think I ever had the kind of bootstrap mentality, but definitely in, an, in a non-bad way, like how like identity politics or, or just thinking about identity in that way was, was, it was kind of was new to me. And, you know, in for six, the last six, seven years, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's a struggle. I, I feel like I'm super behind and I, I'm, I'm very careful when I talk with people. I do a whole lot of listening, uh, <laughs> which sounds like a total Twitter move uh, to say that kind of stuff. But, you know, but being on Twitter is a place where I've, I, you know, I, I trash on Twitter a lot, but being on Twitter is a place where I, I learned a bunch of stuff and had to kind of really, you know, uh, I wasn't jumping into conversations, but I saw other people doing that and, and had to kind of think through and figure out, okay, well, why was that inappropriate? Or why is this, you know, something that I need to kind of a growing edge um, or whatever. But for me, you know, the hardest thing for me was, I guess, understanding, I guess, like you said, privilege, like at first, when I first kind of heard that, you know, because you come from a background like my wife and I came from, my wife is from uh, like legit Appalachia, you know, backwoods, uh, no running water type of like, that's how she grew up. And so for us, when we first started hearing about stuff like, like, priv- like, like white privilege, it's like, well, that doesn't compute because I never felt like that. And so like, and this is, I know this is common, but like, you know, that, that's been a huge trajectory of mine starting out is trying to just get past that and erase all of that nonsense, which I think we're, we're through now. But it's one of those things of being able to, I guess, to have those, 
I don't know. That, that's that's where I'm at now. Like where now I'm, you know, my more struggle now is with progressives who think they've kind of figured it out, progressive white people who think they figured it out and have all the talking points. But then it's like, oh, I don't know that you actually get it. And so I'm, I'm trying to stay on, on this side of that where I, I'm never kind of out there like trying to be vocal and helping people being ally, whatever it is, but not being the person that's trying to like, hey, look at me and look how woke I am. I, I, yeah, I'm trying to navigate that space, I guess, right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, also the Trayvon Martin killing and and Michael Brown and especially the riots in, in Ferguson and Baltimore with Eric Gray afterward. I was in seminary then, specifically at Duke when Willie Jennings and J.K. Carter and Ebby Marshall Terman were still there and like was really, really lucky to be there when James Cone came to speak. and and. You know, there was so much going on at the school at the time. And frankly, like, it fucked me up in a lot of ways, but I was still not like ready for the full sort of implications of it, of what I was learning and what I was hearing from folks. Like, I didn't understand the threat of the violence, I don't think, until in the way that I do now until being in Charlottesville in, in 2017. You know, it wasn't just like August that, that year. It was, you know, the Klan coming in July, white supremacists showing up in May, them like white supremacists driving through town with guns and Confederate flags, like through black neighborhoods, like for weeks before and after August 12th, white supremacists patrolling downtown Charlottesville still to this day, armed like walking around the Confederate statues there. I mean, that place has been a war zone for for four years. And so I think that that's when I got like really radicalized into uh, into organizing and learning from people on the streets and, you know, and and realizing, you know, we a, a couple of weeks ago, we had Donna on the podcast and she said to me once... <laughs> She was like, white people shouldn't need to go to graduate school to figure out how to be a human being. But that's really what did it, you know, because I got out of the context I was in and and started reading stuff that that I just had never encountered before and and listening to folks that I never encountered, you know, that I just had not like heard speak as directly, not just about like issues like colonialism and imperialism, but just you know, the fundamental structures of white supremacy within the Christian faith, for example. And some of, you know, I, I remember a radicalizing moment for me. I was in South Sudan with a bunch of Methodists because my annual conference has a relationship with a bunch of Methodist churches there. And I was there for like a month. A lot of the trip was really kind of messed up white imperialism. And, uh, I remember one night I was really struggling with that. And I said to the group that I was there with, like, what is the point of being over here? And one of the people on the group, this white woman was like, well, it's to make this place like America. And that's what I was like, uh, okay. (laughs) 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 Fuck this. (laughs) So I think that, you know, it's kind of, it was kind of in phases, right? Like, um, was that a pastor that said that? Is that clergy? No, okay. it was not a pastor. It wouldn't surprise it a, me, but I'm just, I just had to know. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> no, it, it was a lay person. But you know, like every, every day we would go to these communities and they would like, you know, it was just, the, the whole trip was so messed up. But like these communities, like the leaders in them would bring us like requests for like, hey, can your church in Tennessee or Virginia send us these things? And they were all like 
I don't know. The whole thing was just just gross. And uh, and that that just it summed it up right there. Like to make this place like America. And I was like, oh great. So like we'll all be satisfied when Yay South Sudan has a McDonald's or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like I think I've talked around it on the podcast before, but um, like going on the world race was a radicalizing (laughs) experience for me. And I did, I almost got kicked off the race uh, because I vocally disagreed with leadership. Um, They maybe wouldn't characterize it that way, but who cares? And I remember listening to this because I'm gay now, so whatever. But it was like the world race is uh, an exercise in in Western colonialism (laughs) in a lot of ways. Uh, And it, it, it's a it's like a hard distance to square when you are are like on fire and you want to go and do good and be good in the world because you think that's what Jesus is calling you to do and you're within this framework of American Christianity uh, that has never asked you to interrogate your own privilege or interrogate like the white supremacist underpinnings of American religion because why wouldn't you want to make uh, South Sudan or other places in the global South, like America, um, because but, but you just are, are never asked to interrogate uh, why that might be bad. And then you get there and you realize that like, actually you're not doing any good and people have given you money personally to do some like ambiguous form of missions. And it's like, we could have just given people money. Literally we could have just given these people money and it would have made their lives directly better. Um, like we could have just given the like thousand dollars or whatever that we have as a budget for this month. Uh, we could have just given it to refugees and living on Lesbos and they would have been able to get off of Lesbos. Like literally that's just what we could have done. And instead we like sent ourselves here to do nothing. So the world race was like a radicalizing influence just because uh, I was squaring that distance like actively <laughs> while it was happening. Unlike a lot of my, uh, Coworkers, <laughs> I, I'm. This is reminding me of of uh, in the initial stages of talking about this podcast. I don't even remember what I said, but uh, Isaac uh, like paused after I said something. He's like, "You need to decolonize your mind, man." <laughs> and so there, there's there's another one of my. I don't even remember why, but it, it, it shook me as as the kids say. I was like, "Oh no!" I was like, "I don't know if I can be in a podcast." What if Isaac does this all the time? It just always <laughs> calls me out on my colonial thinking. Oh my god! But uh, but I think having like I think having. Uh, I mean, I'm not kidding about that. That I was like, I was like frozen for a couple of days. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but I think like, you know, that's actually what I appreciate about about the process of kind of being radicalized is that, or uh, or the journey of it or whatever it is, is that it's actually, it's like, I always feel like I'm I'm not, I don't know, here's a confession. I always kind of want to be middle of the road. I, I really want to be like, it seems so much more comfortable and easy to kind of just be like, ah, you know, unity. Um, but it's like, it's stuff like that, Isaac, like, right? When somebody says something or calls you out on it, or you just have a conversation, or you see things, or you finally notice things, that is, I don't know, that's the, that's the stuff that I that I really appreciate, I guess, in these kind of conversations. And so it's like, it's hard for me to kind of, I guess, shit on, like, some of the experiences. Like, we, I've taken kids to, like, Guatemala, right? And, and really, the, those trips to Guatemala were not mission trips, quote-unquote. They were trips for kids to see third world, uh, you know, or developing, you know, world um, countries, like, that live in poverty and for them to kind of have their, you know, their their world reframed a little bit. And it's like, I have a, I have, I, I struggle with that now, but at the same time, it's like, 
I don't, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Like there's a development process that I think if you, when, when you get introduced to it, it's hard to unsee it later on is what I'm saying. And so having the, the kind of a constant radicalization by people who um, are on the same path or at least seeing the world in the same way is something that I appreciate about it. So, um, but uh, you know, anyway, just don't, don't, just don't call me out on the podcast. Isaac, it's my it's my big fear. I have to t- I, I lay awake at night and uh, and take my melatonin because uh, I, I can't sleep because I'm afraid of getting called out, getting canceled on my own podcast. He's only wow. here to make fun of your tattoo ideas. <laughs> Just living rent free. Living rent free. Brian's 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 yep, exactly. That's exactly right. Just Isaac. Every day, every time I make a move, I go to buy something at the store. It's like, oh shit, what would Isaac say? <laughs> oh man! Wow! 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 Um, I'm so powerful. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think this has been one of the the funny things, though, about about sort of the radicalizing process is that you know then when you when you're preaching and speaking publicly about these things, um, you know, one of the other things that I do a lot of talking about is you know the work I've done at the border with with migrants in Matamoros and and with Maria and Sanctuary. Shout out to the People's Commentary. Everybody, listen to the commentary on Ruth. You can find it. In a separate feed, but it's it's from the Magdalene Network, and you know I've talked about like some of the really fucked up shit I've seen the United States government doing to Maria or to people, you know, uh, at the border, and and you know the the funny thing about it is that people get really mad <laughs> that, that you talk about this stuff, and but they also get really dismissive, and and I think that that's one of the uh, the challenging parts of radicalization, I guess, of is that one of the most frustrating things is seeing people who are like, quote unquote, like allies saying things like, well, you know, obviously conflating uh, leftist politics and, and policies with the sort of far right is one of the most maddening things of all time. As if like the people who want to, you know, massacre indigenous populations and anyone who's not white are the same as people who want free healthcare. It just absolutely drives me crazy. And yet it's so common in in white circles to see those things conflated, especially like after the Capitol riot. Like, well, how is that different than what and, happened in Minneapolis? Portland? I mean, it's just just shut up. If you can't tell the difference, like you're hopeless. But um you know, not, I think not hopeless, maybe, but your internal compass is deeply broken and you should interrogate why. <laughs> it's like I didn't yeah. stutter, hopeless. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I think at the same time, like even when I started this podcast, you know, I've had people tell wait, wait, me wait, that wait. it's kind of like we, we, group effort. I meant group effort. when <laughs> I started like doing the episodes, not when I started the podcast. Oh my it's God. Like, Brian. So when I started this podcast and, uh, <laughs> Keep going. Sorry. What happened with your friends? I just had lots of people be like, you're going to mess up your career by talking about these things publicly. Oh, yeah. I mean... It, well, I, I joke about it all the time, sometimes on, on the actual podcast, but with you all at least, of like, well, I'm not getting ordained now. Um, you know, stuff like that. Because... But, but I don't know where you're going with this, but the frustration on that is the idea that you have to kind of, you know, uh, play into that uh, moderate space where, well, what, what will the other people think? It's like, well, guess what? One of the reasons I'm radicalized, cliche or not, is because I read the freaking Bible, right? It's like, because I, like you were saying, Carrie, like I grew up in this kind of tradition and the stuff that they taught me led me like logically in my mind to this place that I'm at right now. So um, I've kind of abandoned that fear. Uh, if you're listening, uh, Bishop, I, uh, I'm just kidding though. 
But that, but I mean, is that, that's where you're going, right? Like the idea of like it's not being able to speak this stuff. Like somehow we should not speak this stuff for whatever reason, right? Well, but I I, I don't think it's just that. I, I think that like to me, the biggest sort of mind trip of the whole thing is is just like you know coming out of you know the culture we were all sort of raised in is different as and varied as it is. It, in some ways, it's the same. It's the culture of white supremacy that. It's just realizing, like looking back on it after this change and realizing just how deeply conservative it is. And like to the point to where even folks who consider consider themselves like sort of in the middle or or more progressive, like still hold deeply, deeply conservative and and violent positions and then try to make you feel like shit for thinking that those positions are bad. Um, yeah, I actually, well, I live with my parents and sorry, mom and dad, who also listen to this podcast, <laughs> but this is something that I, I uh, my parents are very middle of the road. And when we talk about politics, it does sometimes feel like we're speaking two different languages just because like, like my parents are not um, in any way, like extremely conservative, like, but just uh, when you start talking about the idea that like maybe everyone just deserves money to live just because like they deserve it just because they're people that sounds like such a radical concept uh and so i'll get into conversations with like my dad and and i'm like oh i'm literally like so far left that i forgot that like people actually believe that you 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 don't deserve money if you like can't hold a job like oh like you think that people don't deserve food got it (laughs) I'm not saying that my dad believes that, but it's just like uh, thinking about like the logical positions of conservatism is so crazy to me now. And uh, that, I, that I'm like, oh, I don't know how people like hold this anymore. <laughs> like I've gotten there. Yeah, or, or just like the calls for unity. Like we've just seen the GOP, you know, they've been actively like embracing and causing voter suppression for, you know, decades and centuries. But like, just out and out, basically saying during the Trump administration, we don't want non-white people to vote. And yet now, because Biden's the president, like we're supposed to like listen to them and and treat them as like, well, we need bipartisanship and like, you know, people. It, it just also like after the after the Capitol riots, when people were like, oh, Ben Sass gave this great speech on that on the floor of the Senate about like our moral responsibility and stuff like that. It's like, um, how are we going to listen to the people who have perpetuated this crap before we'll listen to anyone who's been like calling it out for years? Like just, but that's the, that's the sort of moderate impulse, right? It's like, oh, we'll listen to the virtuous GOP or, or the virtuous, uh, Republican or the virtuous like alt-right person. This is like when Richard Spencer was getting profiled in the New York Times, the dapper white supremacist crap. It's just like, this is, you know, when you think about it, like, oh, okay. Um, like half of the New York Times opinion page denies climate change, you know, it's, but it's like, oh, well, ideological diversity, there we go. Like, no, it's just like, it's just out and out white supremacy right there. So I, I guess it is frustrating when, because I think it, Ultimately, what what you're being accused of is like being so extreme that you're suddenly out of touch with reality. When to me, what it feels like has been a long process of letting go of this false reality that white culture perpetuates all the time. And now what I'm clued into, like cued into and trying to always focus on 
is my relationship and society's relationship to other people's pain. And you know, to me, that's the biggest thing. It's like piercing that that kind of mythology that we we grew up swimming in. Yeah, like you, you, you really. This was exactly where I was going to go with this too. Is this idea of like this false reality that we've been taught about how government works or how our country is uh, and stuff like that? And then at the same time, there's this. The, the reality is that that suffering is kind of baked into is the, is the goal of a lot of the capitalistic or neoliberal or whatever, however you want to call it, system, right? Like this idea of suffering is just built into it. And so people accept that as something that is, we can't get rid of that. That suffering just happens. Um, and so I, I love when you think about when we, when you were talking about how, how do you shift, I guess, out of that thinking that, that there's, there's a possibility inside of this reality, like the, even if it's just a sliver that, um, and that's where I find, and that's kind of what, how I live in these leftist, or if you want to call it a radical or extreme spaces is because without that, you're just kind of acknowledging the fact that, you know, to use just steal Walter Brueggemann's language, like the royal consciousness. So it's like, we're all just gonna be numb to this now, as opposed to being, you know, some kind of prophetic voice or some kind of radical thing that shifts people, even if it makes people mad, it shifts them into a thing of just being able to see even just like a glimmer of, of a chance that this might not be how it's supposed to be. When, well, gosh, what was it? I got into an argument with my, with my brother-in-law about something and it was the same thing. It's like, well, we can't do that. Oh, it was about like paying people universal income. And it's like, well, we can't do that. And it's like, why? It's like that when, when any times that happens, like that's that's the thing where I feel the most radical. It's like it's like why not? It's like we pay money for all kinds of crazy shit in this country. Like a universal income, like what is that going to do besides make people's lives better? He also wanted to vote for Amy Klobuchar, so we were on the oh. outs. We were on the outs for a while. <laughs> oh, my, my daughter, oh, my seventeen-year-old daughter, and and this is the uh, and just all because I don't think they listen to the podcast. But like he and I, we grew up together. He was my best friend in high school and before he married my sister. And and you know, so we're still close. My my daughter dunks on him so hard for 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 being a Klobuchar uh, supporter. It's 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 amazing. So anyway, and I. Um, I don't know. I guess a point that I kind of want to make is that I think we maybe have made it sound as if like oh, the left is so embattled, uh, which it is. There's like no cohesive leftist movement in the United States, but I think it's a different sort of embattlement than like the conservative fear mongering of that I think is especially prevalent in conservative Christianity, where it's like we have to protect our families and our our nuclear world from like all of the threats that are outside of us. And that feeds into this kind of like nationalistic uh, fervor, which is, I mean, I think it's just two different kinds of struggles. Um, but, but Jesus gets used in, in the name of like protecting the nuclear family and protecting like white suburban Americans from like people who are rioting, quote unquote, where actually like, it's like the love of Jesus that has brought me to um, like a greater love for humanity and for, I mean, I mean, I guess for the entire world, like I don't, I don't care about the nuclear family in the same way that I used to, because I, I think about how much Jesus cares for the orphan and for the widow and, and for people who exist outside of like the, the suburban American family that the GOP like so dearly wants everyone to conform to. And I don't really know where I'm going with this. I just think that like, <laughs> like Jesus is what brought me here. Uh, above everything else, it's Jesus that did this for me. 
And so I get extra mad when, when Jesus gets used uh, in the name of fear. Mm, yeah. And, and I would just go, I mean, I, I think you're right that like that sense of embattlement it truly can take you to dangerous places. And, and then like maybe the path to, to being radicalized and in a way that leads to like wanting to see the common flourishing of society and of creation and all those things. The the initial disillusionment isn't that far off from a path that can lead to like a deep bitterness and hatred and violence, like being cultivated within the human person and within community. And we should be thankful for all the folks who like helped us find the path towards like joy and more life. But that's the thing to me is that it, you know, when you talked about that, Carrie, is that people always talk about leftist spaces. Brian, I'm I'm sorry that you're so like fearful of my condemnation <laughs> because I think that one of the joys for me about um getting into this movement work and and all of that is that I, I find myself in spaces that are more hospitable than any other place I've, I've ever been a part of, any other community that I've ever been a part of, certainly more hospitable and and welcoming and liberative than the fucking nu- nuclear family churches in your like white suburban neighborhoods. Like that, you know, the, there's such a like performative aspect of those places that Marcella Outhouse Reed captures capture so beautifully when she says heterosexuality makes queer and decent people of us all because it's an ideal that no one lives up to. It's impossible to achieve that purity culture bullshit. It's just not something that anyone actually can ever perform the right way. But I, but I think that, yeah, we would do a huge disservice if we missed out on like the joy of the kind of community that can be found when you do step out of that that myth. And I, and I, I think the other thing that this makes me want to sort of point out is that so often on the pod, we end up having conversations that are sort of like, oh, how do we like fix, you know, the institutional church or how do we fix like contemporary politics or anything like that. And, and, I, and I think, you know, like Al was talking about that to me after a comment I made a couple of weeks ago. And and I think to me, it's it's not about fixing anything, right? It, it's about at this point, like just dismantling and revealing and, you know, the system that we live in, even in like the mainline church, like, and I think this gets back to some of your point, Gary. So I'm going to wrap it up and, and shut up in a second. But like, because if we continue to sort of contest territory with the folks who are doing the what you exactly said, like also using Jesus to prop up their like fear mongering and their like preservation of the white supremacist station that we live in and all of its institutions and stuff, if we just want to like fix what they see as and claim as theirs, if we just want to fix it to where like, oh, it's um more inclusive or or more diverse, but still that fundamentally same thing that's built on these white supremacist roots, then like, then liberation is never going to happen in those contexts. I mean, we should believe those folks when they see something in these institutions as theirs. Like the United Methodist Church is the third whitest denomination in the United States, something like 97% white. And uh, people who are fighting to keep it that way we should take their insistence that it stay that way as a reason to tear it apart. The same thing with Confederate statues in Charlottesville and other places. Like the fact that those people see 
in it, in those statues and in the place that they hold in our society as fundamental to holding on to the America that they believe in should be all the more reason for us to like rip them down and dismantle them and go about like reforming our society. And so this has been a frustration for me and like in the month uh, or the three weeks or so of the Biden administration, people being like, we can celebrate that all these things are good again because it's like, no, the fact that like the white supremacists see these systems as things that are theirs and are fundamental to their thriving means that we shouldn't try to redeem them. We should just try to rip them apart. Or so there, rant over. <laughs> well, no, that was I, that was that was good. I, I appreciated that. And and I, just to address the uh, the first thing that you said is that I actually don't. I'm not that intimidated by you. Don't worry about that. Uh, I don't. I don't want to set up that kind of energy in this pod. Um, but but I but I think actually like what you just said though is a perfect example of like why I appreciate those kind of like challenges because I think those challenges in a in a healthy kind of leftist like friendship or, or relationship or whatever it is, actually that, that spurns growth. And so like, I'm always happy to hear that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, but I love talking about this idea of like those being inclusive, you know, places. Uh, and this is one of the things like with my daughter, you know, who is um, very out and very vocal about everything uh, in her life, be it politics or otherwise, is that when I know that when I bring her into those kind of spaces, that's not going to be a space where she has to uh, couch any of that or whatever. Um, you know, so I, I wonder like, you, you, got, you said so many things that got me triggered. Uh, but like, as far as like the Democrats too, I wonder what you all think about like, you know, did you hear about the thing about with uh, Biden saying he was going to move forward on with the Harriet Tubman $20 bill? And, and that felt like one of those things, like, I don't know how to think about this. My immediate knee-jerk reaction was, well, this is just like performative shit, right? This is just something that's like a gloss over fixing anything real. But then again, I'm like, okay, but does that kind of representation and stuff matter. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think like this is this is part of the conversation that, you know, for me, when you talk about being radicalized, is being able to actually like see things like that and vocalize them and, and be wrong with them publicly. So I don't, I don't know if you guys saw that, but when I saw it, I kind of just like, I groaned. I was like, oh, God, like maybe we could work on something like getting stimulus checks to people that are suffering and not, not necessarily worry about this right now. Anyway. Yeah, I did not see that. But to Joseph Robinette Biden, abolish ICE and then we can talk. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, if that's the only thing, then of course it sucks. But it's also like, at the same time, if it's a part of like actual real change, then, you know, it's not hurting anybody. Yeah, oh, totally. But, it, but it's hilarious at the same time. Um, just, you know. Doesn't it just feel it, like the ultimate like so Democrat right. move? Like we're yes. in power and what are we going to do? Harriet Tubman, $20, but like, they don't know how to win. Like they literally don't know how to win. They have two years to get this shit done and they're not going to get anything done. They're going to spend their time, whatever, whatever. I'm not, I'm not, we're almost at the end. I am not going to get myself worked up on this, but they, they just don't know how to do it. In two years, they're going to lose at least, well, they're going to lose at least the House, uh, possibly the Senate, but whatever. Anyway, moving on. Uh, they just don't know how to win. Democrats do better. They just hate how much of politics seems like a bit now. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> right. Yes, it is a bit. Yeah, God. And I, I think that's... Well, but you know God, what, though? I, I don't think know. That the, the, this is important because I think so much of politics... Yeah, it seems so much like a bit that SNL like can't even actively satirize it in, in a good way anymore. It's so terrible. But um, Speaking of SNL, they got like unnecessarily transphobic and like homophobic just for funsies the other day. Anyway, we don't have to get into it. But I was like, okay. Hmm. I don't watch. I just can't. I can't do it. I saw the clip on Twitter. I didn't watch it like mm. live or anything. <laughs> so I think that 
Damn it, that made me lose my train. Oh, sorry. <laughs> is there anything about Michael Che and how Colin Yost is married to Scarlett Johansson? <laughs> Fuck. I don't know. Okay, well, do we want to do a fight corner? Oh, let's do well, it. Hang on. Before we, before we go there, I wondered if people had any like texts or other recommendations for folks who are reading this that want to get radicalized or help them on your way to it. Brian referenced Communist Manifesto earlier, but are there other things? I mean, I have a couple that I want to shout out. I have one that's kind of niche or niche is niche or niche, whatever. Uh, it's, it's maybe spe- uh, specialist for people that are in ministry, but uh, I read Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age by Bruce Rogers Vaughn, which sounds like it doesn't sound, it sounds pretty vanilla. Uh, but it's like, this is one of those books that when I read it, I was like, holy shit, this is it. This is like the, the next level. I leveled up on my radicalization because it's just this idea of like, how do we take care of people when they either don't acknowledge that there's systematic uh, things are happening against them, no matter who they are? Uh, how do we take care of those people? And how do we also see that and help other people see it? So uh, Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age by Bruce Rogers Vaughn. Exceptional, exceptional book. Yeah, it's really good. Really good. Carrie? I really love Dorothy Day. I think reading her memoirs is a really accessible way to understand like the Catholic worker movement. Um, mm-hmm. And she also oriented her entire life around the poor and she's a really complicated figure, but her memoirs are really good and uh, helps you contemplate like what the cost of um, living outside of capitalist society can be. Word, word. Yeah. Um, I think that probably the biggest one for me, if you're into really theory heavy stuff, uh, Walter Benjamin has an essay called um, A Critique of Violence that is just really, really important, really difficult to get through, but it's short. And if you're in a graduate school setting, I, I would recommend that one. But for anybody, I think the biggest thing for me theologically has been James Cone's uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It's just, um, it's got a couple of, I mean, the whole thing is incredible, but uh, some of it has just been like a thesis statement for me for a while now. And I would say that that one is is huge. And anything written by Willie Jennings also gets a seal of approval for me. You already, named, yeah. you already name-checked her earlier, uh, but Marcella Althus-Reed, uh, Indecent Theologies and Queering... And que- is it Queering God or the Queer God? It's one of the, the two. The Queer God. Yeah, both of those. Another one of those kind of like radical shifts of like, oh, she's, she's working on it. Di- she's doing this at a different level than the rest of us. Uh, uh, so that, those are both really awesome too. Uh, and yeah. before we turn to, to Fight Corner, though, I, I, there's one more that I have that I think I need to, to shout out, which is uh, Learning to Speak God from Scratch by Jonathan Merritt. Uh, another radical, uh, another radical book that uh, might might transition us into the fight corner. I now I don't know if I want to do the fight corner because <laughs> if he hears about it, then we're going to end up on his Twitter feed. Bring it, Jonathan Merritt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, you may have recently heard, if you follow Daniel Mayfield on Twitter, <laughs> that it turns out that when you you scratch at one prominent post evangelical, you get the whole hive mad at you. Uh, which is why Jonathan Merritt, fight me, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> he came out hard. He came out hard at a number of people um, because, you know, he he did something I, that's shitty. 
let's just put it out there. He did something shitty. Danielle posted something that that she was thinking about. She was very, very polite and very logical in her thought. And then he retweeted all of her stuff. He retweeted every tweet individually and had all these snarky ass shit to say about it. And he's out. You know, usually I don't wait into the fight corner. I try to be middle of the road. But, you know, I got you. I'll be your second. Is that what they have in the duels? Seconds? I'll, I'll stand there and just tag me out. I got all this professional wrestling background. I'm ready. Tag me in. I'll give him the, give him the people's elbow. He's out. So hey, anyway. Listen. I know he's at General Theological Seminary right now, and I ha- I'm going to have to go back to work in Manhattan at some point. And I'm just saying, I'm not fucking wait, afraid. Is, <laughs> wait, is he is he there or is it the other? Do we want to name check the other guy too? I think no, it was the other. Both, they're both there. Oh. That's why they're friends. Oh anyway, well. We don't. I don't want to get into um, the nuances yeah. of Christian Twitter drama, except to say that. The way that you talk to women and the way that you talk to survivors of sexual assault uh, is visible to everyone if you're doing it on a public platform, such as Twitter. Yeah, you just out... (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. And if you feel the need to be horrifically misogynistic on Maine and and defend... Because, like, I just think that uh, people should be aware of their own reasons for doing things, which in this case, Jonathan Merritt was, like, very concerned that someone might hold him accountable for his father, head of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, someone might hold him accountable for his father's views, which he has not really disabused himself of. And if you want to come on the pod and fight me about it, Jonathan, feel free. But you have creeped on my Instagram for multiple years now and you only like my thirst trap selfies until I got too butch. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you want to come on and talk to me about it anymore because I'm not hot enough for you. This got real. Wow. Uh, wow. I, uh, <laughs> not, not I, knowing what I know. the fuck y'all are talking about. <laughs> this is, I'm trying to draw conclusions about the subject matter and I am so confused. It's we amazing. might, honestly, Isaac's we might just to cut to out the entire fight corner because it's, it's honestly too much to go into. It was like a very, but it was at root a very sad situation because DL was trying to talk about the ways that people enable abusers in church spaces and the way that abuse gets enabled because people don't want to lose clout or access to fame. And instead of talking about the ways that um, Christian celebrity is built on systems of abuse, uh, Jonathan decided to instead attack DL for her tone, I guess, or for and, and called her abusive and people called her demonic. <laughs> like Brian Zand got in on it and said this was the spirit of the accuser. Um, Brian Zand. Come on, man. Congratulations, you made it in with a but, bullet. <laughs> like rather than engaging with the fact that like much of Christian publishing, Christian celebrity as it currently stands, so many people have been either revealed to be abusers or revealed to have enabled abusers because they were afraid of losing their own power rather than engaging with any of that. Uh, Jonathan engaged in a really bad faith argument. And it's, it's just, it's obvious. It's out there. Women see that. Children see that. Survivors of sexual assault see that. And, and it becomes clear who's going to be protected in these conversations and who isn't. And, and who's like collateral damage in your chase for clout? For and clout. it's uh, yep. it's disgusting. Yep, hundred percent. I, I mean, to just to, I mean, this sounds like a really important thing to discuss. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to cut it out. But I, I think that 
you know, at the end of the day, this this kind of gets to the heart of like what real community is when you are trying to make space for justice and and then into exactly this sort of abusive violence and and the reality that so many people seem to have accepted that we just have to accept it and move on is that, you know, real accountability has to exist, right? And and yet it's so often we we get to this point where it's like, oh, you're being attacked when you're being held accountable. And I, and I just want to say that that's not what uh, real community organizing or leftist spaces look like. I mean, obviously, abolition means that we have a commitment to like anyone um, facing sort of re- <clears throat> like restorative justice, but that just means more deeply held and community involved accountability, not not like some sort of bullshit notion of cancel culture. So yeah, I would just say that fuck Christian Twitter. (laughs) 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 Jonathan Merritt, me, Gary in the Chili's parking lot. Yeah. Can I just say one thing too real quick on that is that you you, you both nailed it. But this idea of like that if you're going to operate and if you're going to try to seek out clout and kind of carve your way out of like into ex-evangelical or whatever the hell he would call himself into this more progressive space, then you have to be able to hear when people say this to you. Like that's part of being in the, like you said, in the leftist space is being able to hear that someone said, you know what, you did something shitty and I need you to understand that and not retweet everybody and be like, well, maybe you shouldn't follow me, which is what he said to me. Uh, guess what, Jonathan? I wasn't. Um, so anyway, I, I think I think it's just, that's part of being in this space too, is being able to, like you said, be held accountable for the shitty things that you might not know you're doing. In his case, I think he knows he's just, he's a clout, he's a clout, clout chaser. End of story. Uh, well, turn the lights off at Here he comes. Oh God! Wait, what? We're, we're getting into it. Wait, wait, wait! Yeah. Oh no! This is this is also as we're talking. Isaac has been like, uh, what do you call it? Reupping his Twitter account. He's been. He's like, I can't miss this. <laughs> reactivated. Reactivated. No, no, I didn't. Um, it just makes me think about Rob Lee. You know, like praying with a politician who's credibly accused of sexual assault and and praying over him. The verse from Genesis 50 or whatever chapter it is about uh, where Joseph says to his brothers, like you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Like as if, you know, abuse accusations could be meant by God for good or sexual abuse in, in any way could be meant by God for good. So just, but as a way to maintain clout with political figures. Yeah. I mean, if that's the business that we're in, then uh, you're actively engaged in, in propping up those institutions and, um, putting a polite face back on white supremacy and wow, yeah, Christian Christian celebrity generally pretty pretty terrible. Be awesome though if we had a Patreon right now that we could drop and be like. But anyway, uh, you know, hit the subscribe button. Cool. Well, this has been this has been good, y'all. I mean, I I think that at the the end of the day, just um, there's so much more to talk about on this, and and I'd be you know grateful to hear feedback from folks who are listening, but uh, I mean, if the church is going to have anything to say going forward, or if it's going to like, I don't know if it's even like do good, because certainly I don't, you know, that's a complicated thing, but. Genuinely, if we could get to like the first simple rule of Wesley's simple rules, like if we could get to do no harm, that would be a big step. Hmm. So. Yeah. But I think I'm at this point, I mean, the reason why I wanted to talk about this, because I'm, I'm kind of at this point and the conversation with Al really challenged me. I was just kind of like, yo, what the fuck is the point? Like, I really am at a place where I'm like, if I can't 
if we can't get to that, then like, what is the point of, of like being an active part of these communities of faith? You know, I'm just at a, like a breaking point with the bullshit. And, and, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's just something that's been like been eating away at me because I'm like, okay, am I going to give my life to save some like shitty institution or, or do I want to give my life to be in real community with people and that love and support one another? And, and, you know, I want, to be able to do that in a Christian way and united with as a, like a disciple of Jesus with other people. But if it just can't be done in, in this day and age in America, then like, fuck it, I guess, you know, maybe being a pastor isn't always going to be my role. I don't know. Mm. There it is. This conversation tells me that we, we should have guests on regularly. <laughs> we go way harder <laughs> when there's no guests. So I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I, I, I appreciated all of this. <laughs> Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I just you know, you're you're right. I mean, you, you're right. It's that's a that's a thing that Christians should be, and especially clergy, I think, but everybody should be thinking about is yeah, L's L's uh, kind of challenge on that was was important, I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, burn it down. This is an apocalyptic age, and all takes may have been revealed on this very podcast uh, until we get canceled. Thanks for tuning in, everybody.